This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Hello, happy Friday. You made it to the end of the first week of 2024. I hope it hasn't been too brutal for you. WA's commercial fishing sector has raised some concerns over illegal fishers operating in the state's northern waters. You'll hear what's going on up in the Kimberley, where some of those concerns are lying before, uh, after rather, half past 12. Also, you'll go crocodile egg hunting this afternoon. Now, I didn't know this was a thing until I got out on the boat to do it myself last year. But it is the season for croc eggs, and so people are arming themselves with oars, ready for the hunt. So what we're trying to do is identify where the female is, because any given moment she could strike out, and as a protected mother, she's going to defend her babies. So what Tyson's trying to do is trying to figure out where she is, and she'll strike hard and fast, saying to these two people with the stick, saying, those are my babies, back off or I bite you. So they're just checking out. Now it looks like we're ready to go. Ready to go. I don't know if you've heard much about it in the past, but crocodile eggs, it's quite a lucrative business. And speaking as someone who has been on those banks with a mother croc waiting to strike, it certainly gets your heart pumping. So you'll go hunting for croc eggs and find out a bit more about that quite interesting industry before one o'clock today. The markets are back on as well today. So I'll take you to Mount Barker for the results of this week's double header uh, double header cattle sale. If you'd like to get in touch, 0448922604 is the SMS. And let's kick off with weather today, because you've been hearing this week just how dry things were across WA in 2023. What was the story at your place? 0448922604 is that SMS. Very shortly, you'll hear a call for financial support for producers right around Western Australia. But the numbers have been crunched. The official data for 2023 and parts of the state's West Coast received their lowest year of rainfall on record in 2023. And in many cases, there were fewer rain days than ever before across the year as well. Jessica Lingard is a meteorologist with the Bureau. Jess, let's look at the north. What was the standout for 2023? Well, I mean, really, the whole northern half of the state had a a notably dry, especially the start of the wet season, October, November, December, um, well below average terms of rainfall across not just the northern WA, but when we touch on southern parts as well, very much below average through those parts as well. Notably, we see Broome um, has only had 1.4 millimetres of rainfall. That's the driest start to the wet season since 2011, where to the same time they had only received 0.4 of a millimetre. And notably throughout December, they had no rainfall reported at Broome Airport. And that's only happened three times in their 80 plus years history at the station. Elsewhere throughout the Pilbara and the Gascoigne region, Carnarvon and Shark Bay have both also set their lowest ever annual rainfall record. 
Carnarvon picking up just 54 millimetres of rainfall throughout 2023. The average is 222 millimetres, so they only received about a quarter of their normal rainfall. And Shark Bay, unfortunately, the story is a little more dire with only 20 millimetres of rainfall reported across the entire year. The average is 193 millimetres there, so only receiving about 10% of their normal rainfall. It's a really difficult year as well. We've spoken to a couple of pastoralists who have said that this kind of is compounded. Where 2019 was a really dry year for a lot of people, um, 2023 is almost worse because of some of the other non-weather-related conditions, you know, the costs Mm. and and there's been bushfires that have impacted some of the the landscape as well. Um, What can you tell me about the year, I suppose, because a lot of people have said that it actually started really well, really promisingly, but then it kind of fell away almost in about June. Yeah, that's right. The first half of the year was sort of relatively normal. Um, And actually, if you have a look at the annual rainfall for most of the stations in the Kimberley, they're well above average. And that's all because of that one week of ridiculous rainfall that we had during the beginning of January when ex-tropical cyclone Ellie was um, sort of really hanging around stagnant in the Kimberley region. We saw all that devastating flooding, um, especially around the the Fitzroy Valley. Um, But then sort of really from the middle of the year onwards, we haven't seen an awful lot. We did get maybe one or two of what we call a northwest cloud band, which is where the Pilbara and the Gascoigne get a lot of their rainfall from. We only saw a couple of those in the June, July month um, and then been very, very quiet. And I think we can probably attribute this to the Indian Ocean Dipole. So um, the Indian Ocean Dipole is the Indian Ocean version of the El Nino and the La Nina that we have in the Pacific Ocean. And at the moment, we are in a positive phase of the Indian Ocean Dipole, which means that we tend to see drier and warmer conditions for Northwest WA. And that's definitely what we've seen. And uh, we don't just see that here on the mainland as well. We are noticing the effects of a drying climate out on Cocos and Christmas Islands as well. Both of those, um, some very, very dry conditions and very much below average rainfall. So this isn't just a mainland thing. We are also seeing, you know, um, these sort of drying effects offshore as well. What have you seen in the Gascoigne region, that sort of southern rangelands and and central Gascoigne? We've heard particularly from pastoralists in that area who've said, you know, the the driest in 30 years. One one person said the sixth driest since their records began. Um, So what statistics do you have around that Gascoigne area? Yeah, look, I mean, definitely not going to... um debate any of those uh, sort of statistics. Uh, It has been a very, very dry year in terms of sort of where we sit in sort of six dries, fourth dries, whatever it might be. We'd have to look at each individual station. But I think, um, you know, we've already broken some records with their their lowest on record. And many, many sites are seeing, um, you know, their, their driest Uh, season or the driest year in a long time. And I think we can sort of um, hang that on the number of rain days as well. Carnarvon, pick on Carnarvon again, um, recorded only 12 rain days in 2023, which you think, you know, out of 365, 12 isn't very many. Um, And that goes and breaks the previous record from 1969, which was 17 rain days. So it's not just that we're not seeing as much rainfall falling. It's also it's just not falling on as many days either.
What are you mm. hoping to see or, you know, what, what not hoping to see, but what's the Bureau <laughs> expecting to see um, for the north of the state going into 2024? Well, I mean, the good news is that the monsoon is coming. Um, so that will help bring an injection of moisture into the northern parts of the state. However, um, it does look like from all of our sort of climate modelling that the seasonal rainfall forecast for the next three or four months does indicate the likelihood of that being below average for most of the northern and western parts of WA. Um, and there is a higher chance, sort of a 40 to 50% chance that the next three to four months of rainfall is going to be in sort of the lowest 20% of all years. So if you can sort of think back over the last 10 years, pick out two really dry years, we're looking at sort of a 40-50% chance of, of joining those uh, couple of dry years. Um, to put that into some numbers, uh, throughout the Kimberley region, we'd be talking about sort of 300 to 330 millimetres of rainfall, and along the Pilbara coast, something like 150 to 200 millimetres. Now, all of this is then heavily dependent on cyclone activity as we make our way through to the end of the cyclone season in April. One cyclone coming along the West Coast and that blows all of this out of the water. And you mentioned the monsoon. That That's great news, hopefully, for the Kimberley and, and parts of the Pilbara. Is any of the monsoon likely to impact some of those Western Pilbara and the Gascoigne properties or, or is that um, are they waiting for a cyclone to get that relief? Look, I mean, the, the, those sort of areas through the Gascoigne are probably a little bit too far south to catch any of the sort of the real monsoon. But having that moisture coming further down south might help to bring us some more thunderstorm activity, which could help inject some rainfall into the area. But I think what we're really going to be seeing is, yeah, as you say, either a cyclone to bring us something uh, further down the coast or perhaps, um, you know, once we see the Indian Ocean Dipole um, breaks down in February, usually, as the monsoon trough enters into our region. So once that breaks down sort of early to mid ne- this, I was about to say next year, early to mid this year, um, we might see some more of the formations of those northwest cloud bands, which helps to drag that tropical moisture down over the, you know, the central western parts of WA. So those are the two things I think we're going to really need to look out for in terms of bringing much needed rainfall to the area. Okay, we'll keep our fingers crossed for that, Jess. Mm. On the Country Hour, Jessica Lingard is with you from the Bureau of Meteorology and we're taking a look at 2023 because we've heard from you that it has been a really difficult year rainfall-wise. A lot of people in the north have been saying that, a really late start to the wet, a tricky year in 2023, but it's also the case in the south, isn't it, Jess? So what's happened or uh, what, what are some of the standouts for the Southwest Land Division in terms of um, weather still? statistics in in 2023? I think, I mean, for people living in the South, probably one of the things that we noticed the most was the complete lack of really strong cold fronts through the winter months. And those are the ones that bring us a lot of our annual rainfall. Um, The cold fronts that we did come through, uh, that we did see come through were very, very weak cold fronts. They didn't bring us an awful lot of rainfall. Um, We didn't see any of those really sort of heavy, wet days. Um, They were usually sort of single digit numbers. Um, And I know a lot of farmers in the region do sort of get excited about the double digits. And I remember thinking we're not seeing an awful lot of those. As a result, the Southwest Land Division's annual rainfall was about 311 millimetres, the seventh driest year on record and the driest since 2019. Again, 
that 2019 seems to be sort of the the driest um, year on record. Um, and that only had 177 millimetres. So we've done better than 2019, but still a very dry year last year. If we look at some of the specific areas around the south, are there any areas that had um, particularly less rainfall compared to their averages? Yeah, look, I mean, some stations throughout parts of the southwest are looking at uh, only receiving 10%, even 20% of their average rainfall for the year. Uh, Broadly across the southwest, I think we were probably sitting around sort of 50 to 60%, especially through parts of the Great Southern. Um, If we look at um, Wajin picking up 60% of their average rainfall for the year, but further down towards the coastline, places like Albany Airport, nearly 100%. Um, through um, more like parts of the central wheat belt, um, what have we got? Cunderdon picking up 87% of their rainfall. But if we move further inland, places like Southern Cross only picking up 66%. So it has been very much so a below average year in terms of the rainfall. And that's not going to be news to any of the farmers in the region. And soil moisture around the south. We heard earlier in the week from Angeline Prasad that, that soil moisture was a quite a good um, way to measure just how dry or otherwise mm. it's been. Do you have any sort of standouts from, from looking at, at that measure? Yeah, look, I mean, for most of the state, very much below average in terms of the, the root zone soil moisture, so that top, me- that top metre of um, soil. Um, in terms of statistics, we're probably looking at uh, across the southwest land division, very much below average, probably in the lowest 10% of all years. And that's not just the southwest land division. We can extend that up into the Kimberley, the inland Pilbara, the eastern Gascoyne and the goldfields as well. So seeing very, very dry conditions across all of those places. If you look towards the rest of 2024 for the Southwest Land Division, are we going to see a repeat? What's what's going on? What's in the forecast? Well, I mean, the next uh, three or four months, if we look at sort of the climate outlooks, unfortunately, I can't do anything much longer than that. But uh, we are into our driest period of the year. So we're probably not expecting much rainfall anyway as we move through the hottest months of January and February and into March. Um, But we'll keep all of our fingers crossed that we do see a better winter in terms of those cold fronts. We'll see them perhaps a little bit further north and bringing us, um, you know, a little bit more rainfall. But the next three months is looking very much below average in terms of a rainfall outlook. Well, I'm hoping one day we can have some positive news from you, Jess. Um, But thank you so much for your time to sort of wrap up what 2023 looked like rainfall wise. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I look forward to you too talking about, you know, what a wonderful bumper year we're going to have in terms of the rainfall. But unfortunately, that's just not the story that we're going to be giving this year. Um, the outlook, at least for the next few months, is that drier and warmer than normal conditions. Yeah, it would be nice, wouldn't it? We'll keep our fingers crossed for a turnaround. That's meteorologist with the Bureau of Meteorology, Jessica Lingard, with a very comprehensive wrap of the state's weather in 2023. The headlines, particularly around Shark Bay, just 20 millimetres for the year, the lowest ever recorded. I got a text from Sam Fanny out at Carbler Station, not far from Shark Bay. He said they had 40 mils in 2023 for the station, which he said was the worst year on record for Carbler. Uh, But he said it's got to rain at some stage. 
So he's trying to keep positive there. You can let me know what you've had, 0448922604. Carnarvon saw the least number of rain days on record, which seems to be quite reflective of what's happened largely across the north. Uh, the northern wet season has been really delayed as well, so hopefully that'll break in a couple of weeks. And the headline really for the south, the seventh driest year on record for the southwest land division, some places receiving just 10% of their average rain. Rainfall. Not a good picture for 2023. 0448922604 is the SMS. If you'd like to see what or share what you're seeing or have seen weather wise, what you saw in 2023, would love to hear from you. Hopefully, we can see things turn around soon. It's 21 past 12. On the topic of weather, a pastoralist in the Gascoigne is calling for freight subsidies for primary producers across the state. Will Baston runs Jimba Jimba Station just out of Gascoigne Junction. It's about a thousand kilometres northeast of Perth. He's been on and off the station most of his life and says that this 2023 drought would be the worst that he's seen. They got 99 millimetres last year, so half of their 200 mil average. But it's been the compounding factors that have hit the station particularly hard. Well, a lot of us out here, we're putting out licks, you know, um, the dry licks to get them to, to sort of take on dry feed. Um, so that's, you know, these sort of dry grasses and and uh, upper upper sort of tree canopy stuff that, you know, they rely on beans and stuff. But we also had a fire in, uh, in 22, in January 22, that took out over 100,000 acres. Uh, so that was a lot of trees that we normally would rely on our dry times. So it's um, a bit of a double whammy to have a big year like the 21 uh, rainfall and then and have a big fire in 22 and then we'll have a drought uh, in 23. So, yeah, that's um, definitely compounded. Alongside some of those compounding factors, cattle prices are particularly low, inputs are growing higher and higher. So can you kind of paint that picture of how things are like for you and, and your business trying to run a cattle station with all of the factors that you're up against at the moment? Yeah, I think the increase of fuel prices uh, has a flow-on effect for all, all businesses, uh, transport, uh, bringing your fodder in, so if you're buying more hay and uh, and licks and, and the rest you need to, and obviously pellets as well, if you want to feed your young cattle, uh, that, that's all increased increase costs. Uh, getting cattle out, um, on, on to, to other speed lots or uh, adjustment and, and then on to hopefully on to some buyers and buyers and as you said there the second half of 23 was pretty pretty low on the old um, interest in buying cattle and, and any, any um, sort of interest was of, of lower prices than the beginning of, of 23 so what you'd hope to make um, and your basic budgets around obviously what was there in the back half of of 23 and, and you know we're seeing a bit of lift in price now based on the eastern states um, rainfall but you know it's, it's, I guess my concern is um, having a bit of a pathway forward for WA cattle um, going through this dry and, and making sure that we've got all the necessary things in whether it's uh, fodder coming in the freight freight um, some sort of uh, support from the state government or the feds on on um, freight. Uh, because that can reduce the cost. I mean, for instance, you might spend $9,000 on a road train of hay just for the transport, and then and then, uh, and then maybe $12,500 for the hay. So 
a big chunk of the cost is is actually getting the getting the materials and and feed to to the stations, um, and then and then just trying to um, budget around how many animals you're feeding and, and how many animals you're obviously putting off off the stations. Um, so yeah, definitely big increase in costs, um, labour, uh, the the notion that yeah, um, shy rates or and um, and your pastoral rents are going up as well, so there's there's always in, in inputs going up, but the uh, the end the end uh, outputs going down because of the dry. The subsidies and and the, the freight transport subsidies that you sort of touched on there. What would you be hoping to see? And sort of who I, I suppose are you are you asking that question? Whether there are is any room for freight subsidies for pastoralists at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. I think it should be looked at. It's not just pastoralists; it should be all farmers. I mean, we've seen dry conditions from um, the Great Southern all the way up to you know, Exmouth, Pilbara, um, a big chunk of WA that has has this issue. And, and I think ultimately, um, there's not many farmers in the state of saying having a great year. Um, and so, really, that's a big big part of WA that, that should be addressed at at, a, at, a, at least a state level, if not a federal level. Um, and the conversation really needs to be had about. And what assistance um, can, the, can these government agencies provide for uh, their, their sort of regional agricultural businesses? And ultimately, yep, uh, they're all private businesses. There's, there's a need to move a large amount of feed, uh, and if this dry continues into 24 through 24, um, you know, the concern I've got is, is where's this feed coming from, uh, and is the feed needing to come from further afield, uh, and then that leads, you know, a further increase of costs. Um, you know, there have been stories about people shooting cattle and 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 reduction in numbers, and that that is happening for sure. A lot of people are doing their best to to manage what they have, but obviously having to to match feed and offer, what they've got to deal with as well. Um, so I think that's uh, something that needs to be concerned of of um, politicians and and uh, bureaucrats alike, and and department agencies, whether in department transport and you know, main roads, allowing permits to to have have um, uh, longer vehicles to cart hay and, and um, move stock out. Are you hearing of people in the in the Gascoigne and in WA shooting cattle because of these conditions? Yeah, I have. I have heard of people in the Murchison um, and it's, uh, obviously they're preparing themselves for uh, a need to deal with the amount of feed that they've got and, and what they can do. Do you think it's something that you are going to be facing yourself at Jimba Jimba? I think it's definitely an option. It's something we've got to look at if we don't get any uh, effective rain coming through our summer. Um, you know, obviously we're hoping for some sort of cyclonic uh, rainfall event. Um, but you know, ultimately, uh, if, if we uh, can find a home, just just the animals somewhere else, we will. And uh, but if we can't, then we'll have to um, pare back and reduce numbers and further than we have. We've done a big reduction here and, and people in our area have done um, reductions pretty evident with the amount of trucks and been moving on the road and cattle moving out of the area. But yeah, definitely something that's obviously uh, you need to, to match your cattle with the feed and offer. On the country hour, Will Baston's with you. He's from Jimba Jimba Station, just near Gascoigne Junction. And we're talking about the well, 2023 and, and just how dry it has been for a lot of properties around the state, but also looking forward to 2024. Unfortunately, the, the forecast doesn't look bright for, for you know, a strong cyclone season or anything like that to bring that cyclonic rain that so many pastoralists are just looking for. 
Will, you've been on the property your whole life, um, you know, in and out for different roles as well, but you've, you've certainly seen it change throughout the years. How do you keep going as a pastoralist when things yeah. are so tough? How, how's your mental health going at the moment? I think it's a great question. I think that, and I wouldn't want to answer to everyone who's on stations, but I think that you've got to, you've got to have perspective. Um, we've got a really good peer group of, of pastors that we link into across the state. Um, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to catch up and have a bit of a yarn and tell you I'd like to see more of is, is you know, whether in every single area everyone has a bit of a barbecue or we'll just have a bit of a break, break, get off the station. I think that's the key, the, the clear thing is when you, you know, if you can get afford a couple of days or someone can give you a hand to, to have that, I'll get a caretaker in or um, just have a few days off the station, it gives you perspective and, and you know, not alone. Um, this is a big, big, bigger issue than just one particular station. So definitely, uh, I'm always asking other people if they're all right, and 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 they're asking me if I'm all right. And uh, we just we just share that sort of support around around the district, and um, you know, it's just something that uh, it's affecting a whole, a whole part of WA, and and really needs to be told as a story that you know we we do need to care for farmers um, because they are you know, producing really good food um, and at this time they're going through a hard hard time well will i'll keep my fingers crossed for some rain for you all your neighbors all the gascoigne the pilbara right across wa really um for the next few months but thanks for chatting with us on the country hour today thanks michelle appreciate it that's will baston he's from jimba jimba station former liberal candidate for the seat of northwest central chatting about those conditions and and really how it's been and it's not just in that gascoigne region it's right across WA. I have reached out to the WA Agriculture Minister's Office to ask whether freight subsidies could be on the cards for primary producers. The Minister's Office said the gov- uh, that the government is aware this is a difficult time for some of our pastoralists and Agriculture Minister Jackie Jarvis is in constant contact with farmers and peak bodies. The statement said there are a number of support services available and we encourage people to reach out for help. Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development Offices are also working with industry. And if you are experiencing a difficult time at the moment, Lifeline is always available to speak to you. You can call 13 11 14. The WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. No news headlines again today, but let's see what the weather has in store for the next couple of days. Angeline Prasad is the duty forecaster at the Bureau, kicking off with the Southwest Land Division. Yes, there's a fair bit of cloud uh, that's um, hanging around the south, and that's due to an onshore flow. Um, so, and it's just a few light showers. There's not much in this airstream. Um, but uh, yes, uh, we do have a trough uh, that's extending across the inland parts uh, and there's some uh, thunderstorm activity further east. But um, the southwest land division, including aspirants, will be mostly um, sort of in an east to southeastly flow, uh, much drier on the west coast and, and, and getting warmer this weekend, quite warm. Um, but, uh, you know, with that onshore flow across the south coast, uh, there'll be a fair amount of cloud cover. Radio. So for those who are looking for this summer weather that we're supposed to be having, given it's the start of January, maybe some in store in the next few days. Yes. All right. For those further in the north, there's been a fair amount of rain around as well. What can they expect for the next few days? 
So thunderstorms, showers and thunderstorms have become a bit more regular across the northern and eastern parts of the Kimberley, and that's likely to come to continue. We haven't seen much rain in the southwest Kimberley, including Broome, and that's that pattern is not likely to change. So uh, the daytime uh, showers and thunderstorms will produce a bit of a drop here and there. So generally rain sort of in the 15 to 30 millimetres. But the southwest Kimberley is going to be fairly, still fairly dry. And if there are thunderstorms, they will be very isolated. There is a heat wave that's brewing across the southwest simply because of uh, the increased uh, sort of sunshine through that area and uh, the lack of rain. So we did have a heat wave earlier in the week that eased off briefly, but unfortunately it's going to come back. So again, temperatures will reach the low to mid-40s and overnight minimums will be fairly oppressive. So mm. there's not going to be much relief uh, from that heat uh, this weekend going into next week. Mm, okay, so the heat wave warning aside, any other warnings we need to be aware of? Um Currently, we've just got the heat wave warning and uh, we've got a marine warning out for a few of our coastal waters for the Gascoigne, Geraldton and Lewin coasts. So some uh, strong winds through there. Now, over the weekend, we will see that West Coast trough deepen. So uh, we have been seeing elevated fire dangers across the Southwest Land Division and with those Temperatures uh, starting to climb and the fresh winds during the morning. We are likely to see some elevated fire dangers coming on Monday. This weekend, it's mostly going to remain high, high fire dangers. But as that heat continues to build up, uh, so uh, probably from Sunday onwards, uh, for Monday, we'll see some fire weather warnings out for the for Perth Hills and a few other places along the scarp. But until then, uh, most likely uh, just the heat wave warning for the north. And also, uh, there's a risk of severe thunderstorms across the interior for the next couple of days. Uh, so uh, it's a possibility we may see uh, some severe thunderstorm warnings issued, but it's going to be just confined to the interior. Angeline Prasad is the duty forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. She was speaking with Tara DeLandgraft. Uh, looking at the rainfall across the state in the 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, uh, totals over 5 millimetres in the Kimberley. Diggers Rest had 17, El Questro 7, Kachana 14, Kananaro 5, Mount Barnett 6, Mount Winifred 8, Theta 37, Wyndham Aero had 28. In the interior, Prenti Downs 9, Eucla uh, in the Eucla, air had five. In the south, again, only the southern coastal region with any falls today. The totals over five millimetres were Mount Howick with six and the Duke with six millimetres as well. It's 20, 25 to one on the country hour. A piece of technology that's been helping Australian farmers in the battle with weeds is now heading overseas. The Seed Terminator was designed and built in South Australia, but the company has now built a new design specifically for Northern Hemisphere conditions. It'll be added to combine harvesters overseas, manufactured by New Holland. Seed Terminator co-founder and executive director Mark Ashenden says the technology will be completely different for the overseas market. Where we've had a uh, multi-stage hammer mill device for C Terminator 1, as we call it. It was brilliant for Australian conditions and uh, as, as we know in Australia, once it, um, the harvest is ripe, it gets drier. 
whereas that doesn't happen in the Northern Hemisphere. So about four years ago, um, we sat down with the engineers of uh, Case and New Holland, and they wanted to um, have a harvest weed seed device, and we needed to make sure that it's suitable for Northern Hemisphere conditions because they're quite simply heavier, greener, and wetter. So what, how is it different to what you might be seeing here in, in, with, in Australia with the seed terminator? Well, the seed terminator, um, probably best people to have a look at it on there. Um, we've actually, it's a, a barrel configuration and um, it's um, completely operated from the cab and it allows the same seed termination, um, but it's a completely different um, and fresh look at it to make sure that it can basically cope with the volume and the uh, conditions of Northern Hemisphere, whereas so the Seed Terminator 1 is a simple, basic design with a multi-stage hammer mill, and the new Seed Terminator 2 is a, a barrel design, and it's incorporated inside the harvester. So there's the two major differences. One, it's not a retrofit. It might be available as one in, in time, but critically, it's actually a natural part of the harvester. And as you mentioned there, it's not necessarily that the, the crops are different, um, it's just that the conditions are different that they're, they're coming into. Absolutely. That's, that's the key. I mean, wheat, grain, canola, everything is, um, you know, we're all growing the same thing to feed the world. But um, the conditions of, you know, the soil types, the moisture, the, the, um, the volume is so significantly stronger and more than we've got in Australia. How did this come about with, uh, with New Holland? A series of coincidences, and um, they were on the on, on the hunt for a, um, a harvest weed seed, and so they did their due diligence across the globe. And um, uh, modestly speaking, we are the leader in the technology, and um, so a, a good couple of occasions. And um, we've been started off working with their engineers um, because at the end of the day, uh, we are hosted on a um, you know a million dollar Aussie dollar piece of machinery, which is a, a factory on wheels, and um, we worked really hard over the last four and a half years with their engineering team first to say, can this fit as a natural part of the harvest? And um, so we've been working with the states in Europe weekly at engineering level um, over the time to come up with a solution that fits inside. Will these be fitted within the harvesters during assembly or, or are they an, an add-on after market? At the moment, um, they're after market, but um, the seed terminator too and the is to be fitted at factory level. So that's the, that's the key and exciting bit, that um, it'll become, over time, a natural part of the harvester, like, um, you know, like the, the combs are out the front and like um, you know, the separation techniques that have been developed over time. So that's the, well, for us, that's a super exciting piece to be a, a, a fitted at factory level. It's um, an amazing opportunity. Will the units still be built in South Australia or that will all be done overseas? No, no, as long as... Um, <laughs> as long as we can and for as economically and as practically as we can. Um, we fully intend to, um, to build them all out of here, out of Australia. Um, and uh, in particular, we're, um, uh, we've got to set up with a, local, a number of local suppliers to us and together we want to make sure that we make them as many as we can, as long as we can, here from Adelaide. That's Seed Terminator co-founder and executive director Mark Ashenden speaking with Brooke Neindorf about the company expanding, going overseas. It uh, has redesigned the technology, really. Um, he said it's completely different to what is on offer in Australia and it'll be added to combine harvesters manufactured by New Holland. It's 20 to 1. G'day, this is Hamish McTaggart from Vigimire Station and this is the Country Hour on... Yeah, basically.
Michelle Stanley with you this afternoon. Nice to have your company. If you'd like to get in touch today, 0448922604 is the SMS. Always like to hear your thoughts on the program. The WA Fishing Industry Council has raised concerns on behalf of commercial fishers after the Australian Border Force announced it had detained its largest cohort of foreign fishers in more than a decade. The multi-agency operation apprehended 30 illegal fishers in waters within the Kimberley Marine Park. It also uncovered three illegal fishing boats, more than one tonne of trepang or sea cucumber, and 600 kilograms of salt used to preserve the highly sought-after sea cucumbers. The vessels have been destroyed and de- the detained Indonesian fishers have been transported to Yonga Hill Immigration Detention Centre, northeast of Perth. WA Fishing Industry Council CEO Daryl Hockey said while the operation, the recent operation was great, a blitz is only a quick fix. Well, they have targeted um, the fishermen, the small fishermen who have been getting the trepang and from the reports we're getting is they're really stripping the, the ocean floor of these creatures. But there's also some really big problems out there near the Rolly Shoals and places like that where these illegal fishermen are coming down in large industrial-sized boats with refrigeration on board. They are pulling up inside international waters and are sending in very fast motorised craft and they're taking all sorts of other fish. It's not only the trepang, they're also taking the demersal fish, they're taking turtles, they're taking all sorts of creatures. And so it's really important that some further action needs to be taken. Do you have confidence uh, in the processes that the 30 people who are detained, uh, they've been transferred to Yonga Hill Immigration Centre in Perth, do you have confidence that there will either be charges or they'll be returned, removed from Australia? Well, we'd we'd have to trust that they're going to be dealt with appropriately, but that's not really the issue. We realise that it's a very difficult issue to be able to police um, these areas in such a remote area. But if, if the government's just going to come in and have a quick blitz and catch 30 people and hold them up as examples, that's not going to fix the issue. We need something month in, month out, year in, year out, which is going to address this issue. Otherwise, it's all going to come back again very quickly. So perhaps this latest operation, Leedstrom, um, in December, they said that they'll continue it until Indonesian fishers or other fishers can be... Um deterred from entering the region, is it possible to have constant surveillance in these waters? Well, it's difficult to do it manually and um, just be, by using large patrol boats because it's huge areas of water that needs to be covered. But in this day and age, you have satellite imagery and photography, you have drones, we've got commercial fishers are operating up there who can be the eyes on the sea. It needs to be an integrated, really well thought out um, process. And I'm sure if we use that new technology and use all sources of information that we can get, a, we can get on top of this issue. Daryl Hockey is the CEO of the WA Fishing Industry Council. He was speaking with SE Deves. Shadow Federal Fisheries Minister Jonathan Dunham says the Kimberley Marine Park operation could be the tip of the iceberg. While it is good to see that apprehensions are occurring and seizures of vessels and uh, catches and equipment is also um, being deployed as a means of deterring these illegal fishers, I'm concerned about what we don't know and how many people are still out there conducting these illegal operations. 
What do you uh, know about the kind of the processes of convictions or prosecution um, or returns from Australia after people are apprehended and put into detention? Do you do you think that's working as a big enough deterrent? Well, clearly the fact that there are people coming and uh, we've now had apprehensions and seizures and there are people who are in detention as a result of being caught means that uh, the message isn't getting through that they shouldn't be doing this. Um, And again, for some time, it's been suggested that there'd be uh, a good investment in educating uh, onshore back in places like Indonesia where many of these illegal fishing operations originate. So people understand that in Australia, if you come here, if you breach our borders, if you fish illegally, uh, there are consequences, including seizure and destruction of your vessels, uh, seizure of any catch, Um, Of course, their own personal detention, convictions and a return to where they come from amongst the options available to the government. Um, We need to make sure that those who are contemplating doing this sort of thing understand that the full force of the law will be deployed. Any, Any equivocation by the government, and we've seen this already when it came to uh, the dealing with um, uh, those who were in detention here based on the High Court ruling, if there's any equivocation or any misunderstanding, any lack of clarity around the strength and severity of laws in Australia, it sends a green light to those who are willing to go and break the law. It's Shadow Federal Fisheries Minister Jonathan Dunningham, 14 to 1. In WA, State Fisheries Minister Don Punch says he's not surprised by the number of detainees apprehended in the Marine Park, but says he's confident in the federal government's response. Look, um, it's not a surprise. We know that there have been um, numerous reports of illegal foreign fishing vessels in those waters. Uh, we did take the matter up with Minister Watt. Um, in November, and I'm really pleased to see the action that's occurred by the Commonwealth Government with, through Border Force and its affiliates to intercept these boats and try and put a stop to the fishing. It's been a multi-pronged approach, and uh, what's really pleasing is that the um, patrol vessel Walcott, which is the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development, has been assisting in that process, and we've had um, uh, officers from the Commonwealth on board the vessel to assist with interceptions. Minister, is last month's blitz the tip of the iceberg, in the words of the federal opposition, or is it enough to deter fishers in a bigger sense, not just the smaller boats, like you said, looking for Tripang? Well, look, a blitz sends a very clear uh, message that we mean business. And the fact that the West Australian government is working with the Commonwealth government to assist the Commonwealth government is a pretty important part of that equation. So blitzes have a role to play, but there is an ongoing process of uh, identification. Our our patrol vessel Walcott is in the area continuously, apart from crew changes, and we um, provide intelligence and support to the Commonwealth in the identification of illegal fishing vessels. That's WA Fisheries Minister Don Punch. He was speaking with Maya Cordic about this issue. So 30 uh, Indonesian or illegal fishers, they were uh, apprehended within waters within the Kimberley Marine Park, uh, more than one tonne of trepang sea cucumber 
was uh, found on three boats as well as 600 kilograms of salt. It's 12 to 1 on the country hour, 0448922604. If you'd like to get in touch today, the ABC has reached out to the Federal Minister for Fisheries. There was no response from them. The Australian Fisheries Management Authority, AFMA, would not confirm whether charges had been laid or whether the group had been removed from Australia um, that, that group of illegal fishers and the Australian Border Force records have shown that 125 boats were intercepted during the 2022-23 financial year. You're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Now, this is not a job for the faint-hearted, but with the wet season upon us, even though it is still dry in the north, the team at Crocodilus Park, just out of Darwin, has started collecting crocodile eggs. Each year they collect around 1,000 eggs with nests containing about 50 eggs on average. Max Rowley took the risky journey down to one of the nests with croc keeper Tyson Whitefield and the team. So what we're trying to do is identify where the female is because any given moment she could strike out and as a protective mother she's going to defend her babies. So what Tyson's trying to do is trying to figure out where she is because um, pretty much about 10 metres to your left is actually the river. So she could be anywhere in an ambush position and she'll strike hard and fast saying to these two people with the stick saying those are my babies, back off or I bite you. So they're just checking out. Now it looks like we're ready to go. All right, let's head in then. Hopefully there's no protective mother. Oh, I hope's not, mate. All right. So this is the nest. So most of the time uh, the females will build a big mound of dirt. Every croc species is different. So with the other croc species, the freshwater crocodiles, they dig it in the ground, whereas a salty, nice big mound. So normally it's roughly about two metres wide and about a half metre tall with all sorts of vegetation. Um, here on our river cruise, we give them just a bit of hay and they do the rest. So pretty much this female's here. She's come up, used her back legs, and she's just been scratching all the dirt, making this beautiful mound. So what we try to do is we open the nest up to identify where the eggs are, and then we'll put a thermometer in the nest, close it back up, give about 30 seconds, and then we'll get a rough estimate of the temperature of the nest. Why does the temperature of the nest matter? Um, because it determines the sex of the eggs, and also if it's overheating, some of the eggs could actually cook up inside. So the last few nests we've collected, they've been between roughly 35 to 38 degrees when we've collected them, and um, some of the eggs in a couple of days after that haven't actually made the incubation process. So it's our job is, as keepers, we come in, we collect the eggs, that way they have a high success rate of hatching out. It takes about probably 85 days exactly um, to incubate, then they hatch, and you get more baby crocodiles in captivity. Compared to the wild, it's about 20% uh, hatching rate out in the bush because you've got um, climate's the biggest thing, threat to these guys. So you've got, we've got two people standing watch on either side of the nest. Yep. I guess I better let you get, yeah. get stuck into it. <laughs> And so, Emily, you're holding a, a big oar with, with some pipe attached to the end yes, of it. and it's a bit chewed at the end. You can see a few bite marks there, a bit of chunks missing, torn off. So what's the strategy if the croc does so come towards us? If she does come out, it's just a bit of a gentle tap, and it's more of a bit of an annoyance thing. So you want to get, get in front of her. If she comes out, I would lunge straight forward, and I'd start giving her a few taps, and then she'd go in the water after, you know, two or three taps. Every croc is different. Being out on our river here, though, the, the females are a little less defensive compared to, say, um, some of our enclosures up in the park. 
because up in the park they're used to seeing people all the time, you know, from 9 to 4pm, people walking past their enclosures, whereas down here on the river it's just the river crew. So when it, we're out here, they're unsure of what's going on. They just know that, you know, they've got to protect their nest. If I was holding that oar, <laughs> I don't know if I'd be game. I don't know if I, I wouldn't trust that it would work, just uh, knocking the, the croc with that. I'd probably be turning the other way and throwing it and, and running. <laughs> oh, look, when, when it's your job, you know, your guard, that's your, your responsibility is to make sure the safety of your team members. And you'd be surprised. It's a, it's a bit of an instinct thing that kind of comes over in you and you know that, okay, I've got to, I've got to protect myself and I've, I've got to protect my, my staff here. So you'd be surprised what you can do. I'd maybe need to work on that before I get a job at Crocodilus Park then. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, for such a big mount, you have no idea of where she's actually deposited her eggs. So they could be at the very top or they could be right at the bottom. You have no idea. So before they actually build a nest, they need a good rainfall to come in. So this, this year's actually been a bit um, slow start compared to last year. Last year it was already raining in October. So far it's been raining these last couple of weeks um, in November and December. So when it rains it gets all nice and moist. So the hay before was all dry, now it's all nice and moist. Just come over and just dug it all up. Which makes it harder for me to get in here. Oh, here you go. Get right in there, there you Wow. Go. So that's a saltwater crocodile's egg. So you can see, all piled up. Jackpot. So what we do now, is get the thermometer out, put it in, cover back up and give it about 30 seconds. So what's the ideal temperature that you're looking for? Um, roughly about probably 32 degrees. And also the temperature determines the sex of the crocodile. So 32 degrees, you're going to get your males. Um, here in the wild, any above below degrees, you're going to get more females. So this nest... Most likely it'll be a bunch of little girls inside the eggs. But it can change the course of the day. So this could have been here for about a week and um, they really could have been sex. But it can change the next couple of months, hopefully. What's the success rate in terms of collecting the eggs and hatching um, them elsewhere? So there's no real increasing in that, unfortunately. So naturally, both wild and captivity, you're going to get probably 20% hatching because uh, you will get some infertile eggs or some eggs that have naturally been affected already by the heat and they haven't kicked in or shown any signs of damage until a couple of days later if we collect them. And there's always the odd human error as well. There might be one or two eggs that accidentally have been rolled in the process of moving because sometimes we might collect all the eggs. As soon as you pick up that box, mother comes out and you're like, <clears throat> and you're going to drop the box and you're going to run like hell. There's that error as well, but from hatching rate to reach the big crocs that you see around in the wild, it's about 1%, so in captivity, they have a much higher rate to reaching the big dominant hood. A lot of people do say why we harvest eggs, um, the preservation of crocodiles, so you can imagine the wild 20% hatching rate and it's a 1% to the fully grown maturity hood. Here, you can collect them and you'll have more higher numbers here in captivity. All right, so the eggs are all here. So you can see how they're all um, placed here in the nest. Just grab one at a time, and that's the egg right there. Then you just gently put it in the box here. And when you do this, um, there's a 50-50 chance mother gets upset and she'll try to kill me. So I'm trusting Tyson. So you've got your esky full of precious cargo and out the way you came. And now all these eggs are collected, where are they off to next? Um, yeah, so we go at, at, the, at a place called the Green Shed. At the back we've got a process 
to incubate the eggs and um, and then we've got an incubator um, like little room and it's at a steady 32 degrees temperature and every morning we go in and then just check if it's working or not. And for the hatchlings that do make it, do they all stay in the park or do they venture elsewhere? Um, some stay, um, but commonly they actually get sent to other croc farms because other croc farms, we've had no luck with their breeding programs. Our breeding program are very successful. These guys have been laying for the last 10 years or so, so they're very consistent, which is good. And uh, sometimes in the Northern Territory you can actually have a crocodile as a little pet, um, probably the best pet to look after. Don't have to give them much love, just feed them once a week. Don't have to give them baths or give them for a walk. You can do that, or but commonly they go to other croc farms here in Darwin, or they get sent around the world as um, entertainment or their own research programs as well. Yeah, I don't know that I'd have one of those as a pet. That's Tyson Whitefield. He's a croc keeper and tour guide at Crocodiles Park in Darwin. You also heard from Emily Moyes chatting with Max Rowley going croc egg hunting. Uh, it is the season. Off to the news very shortly. First, though, cattle sales resumed this week with a double header at Mount Barker. 2,188 cattle were on offer at yesterday's wiener sale and 576 at today's trade sale. As usual, Tracy Kilner has all the details for you, starting with the Wiener sale. Numbers are up for our first Wiener sale of the year with a total 2,188 excellent quality Wiener calves at Mount Barker. Prices trended down on steers with feedlot buyers selective on heavy weights and limited demand for the lighter weight calves. The heifers eased with the exception of the heavyweight heifers weighing over 380 kilos gaining, while the medium weight heifers remained firm with export and restocker demand. Wiener steers weighing over 380 kilos returned 198 to 258 cents. Steers weighing between 330 and 380 kilos sold from 180 to 260 cents. Lighter steers weighing 280 to 330 kilos made 200 to 290 cents. And weights under 280 kilos returned 180 to 254 cents a kilo. The Wiener heifers weighing over 380 kilos made from 176 to 232 cents. Weights from 330 to 380 kilos made 158 to 230 cents a kilo. Lighter weights weighing between 280 to 330 kilos made from 120 to 242 cents. And weights under 280 kilos returned 80 to 242 cents a kilo. Bulls weighing under 450 kilos made from 160 to 220 cents to export. Today's trade sale saw processing weight cattle ease while the lighter weights gained with demand from feeder buyers and export. Heavy cows were firm while demand pushed the lighter weights and store cows up 20 cents a kilo. Grown steers weighing 500 to 600 kilos made 130 to 182 cents. Lighter weights returned 164 to 192 cents a kilo. Grown heifers weighing under 540 kilos gained 15 cents, selling from 160 to 192 cents, while the heavier weight heifers made 138 to 152 cents a kilo. Heavy cows sold from 110 to 142. Medium weights made from 110 to 126 cents. Store cows sold to processors for 80 to 100 cents, while feeder and restocker buyers paid from 80 to 138 cents a kilo. PTIC mixed-aged cows sold from 138 to 142 cents a kilo, and heavy bulls eased, returning 108 to 132 cents. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks, Tracy. That's it from me, Belinda Varischetti, back on Monday. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.